ready, Kurt, uh, uh, Bob? I'm ready. Okay, let's go. Uh. Hello, everyone. We're back. Uh, are we back into the session? Yes, we're all listening to you. Okay, great. Uh, good, good day. This is uh, year 2006, February 23rd. Uh, Ontolog Forum invited speaker session here. We have the honor of having Dr. Matthew West from the Shell Company uh, joining us today to give a talk on an introduction to four-dimensionalism and ISO 15926. Uh, before we moved on to the proper uh, session, uh, maybe we can go around and have each one introduce themselves. I'll go down the list as we had captured earlier on the attendees. Uh, we'll skip uh, Dr. West for now. Uh, Dr. Cassidy will introduce him later. Uh, let's start with uh, Pat, Pat Cassidy. I'm on? Yes, please. Well, I didn't realize I was going to introduce Dr. West. I guess I must have missed that. But I'll tell you, uh, <coughs> Dr. West and I have had very interesting conversations for many years. He is the principal author, or the sole author, I'm not certain, Matthew, of um, the ISO standard, ISO 15926, which is an ontology which is, differs from uh, some of the uh, common ontologies one sees in that it adopts a four-dimensionalist um, viewpoint. Uh, he is a, um, a principal scientist uh, at Shell and, and a visiting professor at Leeds. Or, or, or are you still there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And um, uh, Matthew has been very active in um, many of the discussions uh, about uh, common upper ontologies. Uh, been helpful in the IEEE group uh, in. in the Reference Ontology Development Consortium, and more recently in the uh, Ontology Taxonomy Coordinating Working Group and the Cosmo Working Group. And uh, uh, we're very interested in ha hearing what he has to say because uh, you'll probably hear things about ontologies that you haven't heard from other people. That'll be enough for now. Fantastic. So could you also introduce yourself? Just very briefly. Pat, Pat Cassidy. I'm, I'm working now at MITRE Corporation. Um, I guess uh, my greatest interest right now is as chair of the Ontology Taxonomy Coordinating Working Group and the uh, Common Semantic Model Working Group, trying to um, find agreement on upper, upper ontology so that we can all use the same language and get on with the problem of trying to figure out how to use knowledge. That's it. Fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm Peter Yim. I'm one of the co-conveners of the Ontolog Forum, and my day job is uh, president and CEO of CIM3. That's the company providing uh, hosting services for distributed collaboration. Paul? You may be on mute, Paul. Paul? Coke? Uh, this is Paul with Kevra Company, and uh, we are involved with health, health informatics. Kevin? 
is Kevin Lynch. I'm an employee of the federal government. I'll have to leave it at that for the moment, but I will say that I have a background in uh, both philosophy and library science, so uh, ontologies seem like a natural uh, fit for me. Thanks, Kevin. Bill? Bill DeSmet? Did you mean by Bill? Yes. Uh, Bill DeSmet. I'm a knowledge engineer with Concurrent Technologies Corporation in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Welcome. Wes? Yes. Wes Regent, <coughs> um, currently a knowledge engineer with Concurrent Technologies Corporation. Recently retired from the Air Force Research Laboratory where I was Director of Artificial Intelligence for Human Performance Enhancement. Mike, Denny? Hi. Uh, I'm a colleague of the uh, prior two folks here at CTC, uh, and uh, I'm a principal ontologist here uh, involved in a number of uh, different uh, federally sponsored um, projects for information processing and decision support. Yeah, and, and Mike, welcome. Uh, you're yeah. joining us for the first time, but we've been pointing people to your articles about uh, the ontology editing tools for years. Oh, great. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm always eager to hear uh, promotional material. Thank you. Kurt? Uh, thanks, Peter. This is Kurt Conrad. I'm an independent consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, specialized in the area of information policy and governance. Thanks, Kurt. Bill? Uh, Bill McCarthy. I'm a professor of accounting and information systems at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Thanks, Bill. Uh, Jeffrey Schiffel? <coughs> Yeah, I'm Jeff Schiffel. I'm uh, with the Boeing Company with the Integrated Defense and Space Group in Wichita. And I'm also working on uh, completing my dissertation and a bridge between knowledge management and knowledge engineering. Great. Uh, Gary? Yes, this is Gary Burkross, an uh, ontologist with EMNI. I work on the intersection of ontologies and uh, enterprise architectures and in data interoperability. Great. Dwayne? Uh, Dwayne Nichols, Senior Technology Evangelist for Adobe Systems, and I am extremely intrigued by this work. Uh, back in 1999, we began a project uh, which arose from something called EBXML, which is now more or less defunct, but the core components technical specification which came out of there actually had not only temporal, but had a matrix of eight different context classification schemes to overlay onto ontological classes and objects, and actually this is the first work I've seen that is really complementary to it, that seems to uh, substantiate that this, uh, this is probably an area that needs a lot more work. I've been waiting for a lot of years now for somebody to come out with kind of a uh, context classification system to overlay onto ontologies, and with, I'm just looking so forward to this. Thanks. Thanks, Dwayne. Bob? I'm Bob Smith with Tall Tree Labs in Huntington Beach, California, and I echo very strongly all those uh, issues that Dwayne Nichol just uh, articulated about this uh, fourth dimension as a useful overlay uh, on a whole series of process technologies and connecting that with uh, a good framework. Thanks. Larry? Hello, I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm with the Internal Revenue Service in Atlanta, uh, and I'm with the chunk of the service that deals with all of us as individual taxpayers. So file electronically between now and April 15th. 
Um, we, we're involved in a project right now to create um, uh, not so much an ontology, but at least uh, something in the, in the taxonomy field for uh, the IRS as a whole. And uh, there are some of us that are hoping that it will go ahead and uh, move on into uh, the ontology layers and integrate with some of the other work that's being done across the federal government. Hi, this is Peter Brown. I'm, uh, I'm an official of the European Parliament, but currently on loan to the Austrian government as a senior strategist on pan-European e-government strategy. And we're looking to uh, start a project to uh, build uh, a knowledge layer to allow uh, civil servants in different administrations across Europe to find out about e-government services provided by other member states across 25 uh, member states across 22 languages. Um, weeks a long time in politics, uh, but this issue of uh, how uh, issues and ontologies change over time uh, is something which I've, I'm extremely fascinated about. And it's uh, interesting that I actually we crossed across paths with uh, with Matthew maybe six years ago on a, a project called Knowledge on the Web, which was. Uh, right. um, which was, I think, my first introduction to this sort of area, and I'm deeply grateful to Matthew's uh, work at that time, and I'm looking forward to another burst of enthusiasm following today's call. Thank you, Peter. Ken? Hi, I'm Ken Veslovsky. I'm with uh, Northeastern University. I do research in ontologies and the semantic web, particularly in the area of uh, uncertainty and situation awareness, and I'm particularly interested in the talk today. Because of uh, it, the uh, situation awareness, of course, is highly dependent on time, and uh, so the and uncertainty, of course, also varies with time. So all of this is certainly very closely connected with these uh, important areas. Thanks, Ken. Itzhak? Uh, yes, Itzhak Roth. I am an information-slash-semantic architect, a new title. Uh, for Unicorn Solutions, uh, currently working on uh, implementing or harnessing uh, Unicorn technology for uh, ontology-driven queries and semantic information integration in the context of a large bioinformatics project. Also, extremely interested in this aspect of ontologies, and this goes back to my dissertation many years ago. <laughs> Evan? Hello, uh, I'm Evan Wallace from the National Institute of Standards and Technology in the U.S., and um, I'm involved in using um, KR for integration of manufacturing systems, and um, also involved in related standards activities in uh, W3C and OMG. Thanks, Evan. Uh, Josh? Um, Josh Lieberman. Uh, I guess I call myself a geospatial architect. Uh, we're a small firm, Traverse Technologies, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I also do quite a bit of work for the Open Geospatial Consortium and coordinate some activities there, trying to bring the geospatial web to the semantic web. So the ontologies, which are geospatial temporal in nature, are of a great interest. Uh, especially, we're learning the the management, the, the, the practice, and the uh, actionability of such ontologies. And uh, so that's a very current vital interest right now. 
Thanks, Josh. Uh, uh, Jim Werner? Yes, my name is Jim Werner. I work at the Boeing Company in the uh, Puget Sound area, and currently I'm providing uh, architectural direction for collaboration tools and services that the company is uh, attempting to deploy and coordinate. Great. All right. Uh, anyone in the audience that we have uh, has not had a chance to introduce themselves? Peter, this is Kathy Ellis with Eli Lilly. Great. So, uh, welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay. If not, then uh, we will move on to the, uh, the, the Dr. West's talk. Uh, and for those who are uh, who have access to the VNC server, the slides will advance synchronously uh, when Dr. West calls up the slide advance. Uh, and if you have a firewall problem that pre precludes your access to the VNC server, the slides are somewhere down like three or four sections below uh, Dr. West's picture, where it starts with Dr. West prepared slides can be accessed by pointing your browser to that long, very long link. Click on that and it should download the PowerPoint and allow you to run it locally if you have either PowerPoint, PowerPoint Viewer, OpenOffice, or a range of viewers that would allow you to uh, open that up locally. Uh, Peter? Yes, this is Dwayne. Are you still using the, uh, the uh, IR room for raising hands to ask questions and stuff? I didn't uh, see it on the material. Not today. I mean, we usually use that when we have a group discussion session in on the speaker sessions, then I guess uh, we would just try to find out who, who has a question and then uh, queue them up. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, you. So it's all yours, uh, Matthew. Okay. Um, it's probably just worth dealing with questions um, before we start. Um, uh, in general. Um, it would, I think, from my point of view, be best if only questions of clarification were asked whilst I'm presenting. Um, is that all right with you, Peter? Of course. Okay. Yep. Um, if, if, there are, if there are more substantive questions, then I'd ask that you keep them to the end of the presentation, and we can deal with them then. Okay. Um, and then before okay. you start, let, let's uh, ask everybody to try to mute their phone, but do not put the phone on hold, because that may put music onto the line and, <coughs> and it bothers the, everybody else and the recording. So uh, let's all mute our lines. If you press 6 on your, your keep, uh, keypad, I mean, that mutes your line on, on the conference call. And uh, everyone that were uh, Matthew. Okay. Go ahead, Matthew. All right. Thank you. Well, good afternoon. Um, and thank you all for coming here, um, virtually or, or otherwise. Um, it's uh, a pleasure to be introducing uh, Four Dimensional and ISO 15926 to you this afternoon. Um, so if we can advance off the title slide. So we're now on slide two. Um, I'm really just, there are just really two items for this afternoon. Uh, the first one is just a, a, a very general introduction to four dimensionalism. 
Uh, and the second one is an introduction to how four-dimensionalism has been incorporated into ISO 159262 uh, life cycle integration schema. Um, I might try and remember what the full title of ISO 159262 is, um, but it's uh, a data model for uh, process plants, um, process plant data. And I'm going to have to ask to be excused just for a moment because um, I'm at home and the front door has just gone. <laughs> Go ahead. Peter, can you hear me or am I on mute? Uh, I can hear you. Okay, the, the mute didn't work. Thank you. Sorry about that. No problem. Okay, I'm back. So the advantage of being at home is that I can actually see the slides over the internet. The disadvantage is that it's a home environment. Okay. Um, so we will actually just look at some of the key concepts in the data model and see how the four dimensionalist principles have been uh, have been implemented. So if we can move the slide on, this will be slide three now. Uh, 3D and 4D approaches to ontology. Um, well, one of the interesting things is uh, that, in principle at least, there are, there are an infinite number of ways in which we can model the world. Um, so it's almost surprising, given that, that uh, there are really two m main approaches with minor variations in the literature. Um, and we can call these, uh, well, I will call these at any rate, um, the 3D paradigm and the 4D paradigm, um, although there are other names that they go under for, for various purposes. Uh, next slide, please, so that's slide four. So let's look at what 4D. Um, a 4D ontology treats all individuals um, as spatio-temporal extents, so actually as a 4D object. So it's not just something spatial, but something extended in time as well. So individuals exist in a manifold of four dimensions, three space and one time. So we can talk about things in the past and the future as well as the present. Um, and in fact, it, you take yourself outside time to talk about things. So when you're, uh, you, if you're talking four-dimensionally, um, in principle, you should be able to say things using the present tense. So the four-dimensional extent is viewed from outside. Yes, that's right. The individuals extend in time as well as space and have both temporal parts and spatial parts. So it's perfectly sensible to talk about me today or even me whilst I'm talking uh, to the ontologue community. Um, uh, uh, that chunk of me is a perfectly sensible thing to, to talk about. Um, so, and the other thing is that when two individuals have the same spatial temporal extent, they are the same thing. Now, this would be strong four-dimensionalism, but I, I think the weak four-dimensionalism, which allows more than one thing to have the same spatio-temporal extent, um, is not really very useful. Um, it, it kind of throws away the, the baby with the bathwater. So, and certainly in ISO 15926, it's, it's the basis of identity for individuals that they have the same spatio-temporal extent. So, 
A 4D object is not usually wholly present at a point in time, but its whole is extended in space as well as time. So the object at a point in time is just a temporal part of the whole. Um, change is very naturally expressed with, in, in, in this, this way, because you're talking about states of things and between changes in states. Um, and uh, it, it works out very, very easily, as uh, Peter Simon showed in his book um, on parts. Um, and if, oh yes, it's probably worth giving a plug for Cider's book as well whilst we're here. Um, if you want to know the uh, uh, the long version of this slide, you want to read Ted Cider's Four Dimensions. It, it's only just over, uh, what would it be, probably about $15, I think. That kind of, that's that kind of order of cost, so it's actually quite cheap. Um, it, it's probably worth mentioning that amongst... Um, or at least I'm told amongst the philosophical community, this is actually the dominant view these days. So whilst when he wrote parts, Peter Simons uh, was a three-dimensionalist, um, he's actually now a four-dimensionalist uh, from a conversation I had with him just a week or two ago. Okay, so next slide, please. This is slide five. Okay, well, if that's a 4D ontology, what's a 3D ontology? Um, a 3D ontology treats physical objects, so again, roughly the things you can kick, as something that passes through time. So it's wholly present at each point in time, but passes through it. So physical objects are three-dimensional objects that pass through time and are wholly present at each point in time. Physical objects are viewed from the present. That's the default, anyway. The default is that statements are true now. Physical objects do not have temporal parts. Different physical objects may coincide. So, for instance, um, Bill Clinton and the President of the United States, there's a, there's a time when they coincided. The object at a point in time is the object of primary interest. Um, and indeed, when you want to bring time into a three-dimensional ontology, uh, you find yourself doing what's called time indexing uh, your statements when you don't want to talk about the present. So to talk about an object at different times, yes, that's right. Uh, so a football match, okay. And um, although uh, 3D ontologies can be pure 3D and try to treat processes the same way as they treat physical objects, um, actually most of them don't. Most of them treat activities and processes, those sorts of things, um, as 4D objects that are extended in time. So the three-dimensionalism normally only applies to uh, the physical objects. Uh, in a four-dimensional ontology, both activities and physical objects are treated as four-dimensional. Okay, slide six, please, then. Okay, well, um, I've been working with a background in data models for something like um, 20 years now, maybe just a bit more than that. Um, and in the uh, mid-90s, we started to develop uh, what became eventually ISO 15926. Um, and we became aware that there was this choice to be made between three-dimensionalism and four-dimensionalism. Um, and clearly, we had to make a choice. I mean, you, you cannot combine a three-dimensional and a four-dimensional view of uh, physical objects. 
it is not possible to treat something as both having temporal parts and not having temporal parts at the same time. That's, that's a clear contradiction. So you actually have to pick between those. So uh, when we look at that, we see that the three-dimensional approach actually corresponds quite well with the way that language works. Not surprisingly, language has a focus around here, now, you and me as a context, and on the current state of affairs, because, um, not, it, it, I surmise at least, um, because this is what we're most often talking about, and language is tuned to be most efficient to do that. Um, on the other hand, dealing with change is relatively problematic. So whilst um, Simons only took about a page to talk about how to do change in a four-dimensional ontology, he actually needed several chapters to, to give the same treatment for a three-dimensional ontology. Plus, you actually have to think about it. You can't avoid change in a four-dimensional ontology because you're faced with uh, time just as something that's fundamentally there. It's not something you add on afterwards. So. As far as I can see, though, it has to be said that what can usefully be said using one paradigm can generally be said using the other. Um, but I can identify a few things where there are difficulties uh, in things that can be said four-dimensionally and saying those things three-dimensionally. Um, but I wouldn't say it was impossible, it's just that it's more awkward and more difficult from my point of view. Um, I think there are some things which are probably more awkward to say uh, in a four-dimensional paradigm as well, but I, I probably don't notice those. So if you can move on to slide seven, please. Okay, ISO 15926 um, is designed to be an integration model. The, the problem we were trying to solve is that in engineering design for things like um, offshore oil rigs, which run to a couple of billion dollars a piece, um, there's an awful lot of engineering data that needs to be handed over. And a lot of that engineering data needs to be available in systems in order to support the operations and maintenance of that uh, uh, engineering facility. And uh, that information comes from almost literally hundreds of systems and needs to be integrated and made available. So we were looking for an environment within which we could bring all that information, design information together and hand it over um, as data because historically you go back much more than 10 years, in fact even 10 years, um, the information is being handed over on paper. And you would talk about how many pantechnicans you would need to ship the, uh, the, the manuals. Uh, to, to to wherever it was that the facility was. So we started work with something that was uh, called the Epistle Core Model. Epistle is the consortium um, that has been, uh, well, it's a consortium of consortia uh, that has been around de developing um, uh, the, this data model. And it was originally known as the Epistle Core Model. And when it was presented to ISO, it became ISO 15926. So this effort started around 1993, and the current version, that what is published as ISO 15926 Part 2, is actually the same thing as the Epistle Core Model version 4.5.1. And that became an international standard in 2003. 
and there's a you can see the link underneath. If you actually want to look at the full model um, with definitions um, in a browsable linked schema, uh, you can see the link for that at the bottom of the slide. So if we can move on to the next slide then, please, slide eight. So what are the things that we've got? Um, well, one of, our, one of our principles is that everything should form part of a subtype supertype hierarchy. So you need something at the top, and we called it the thing. Um, so the class of all things. So anything real or abstract. Um, and then we had uh, three major subtypes of this. Possible individual. Uh, so this is anything that exists in space or time, space and time. So these are things that are spatio-temporal extents. Classes, these are collection of things, um, possibly infinite, where the order is not significant. Um, and indeed, classes are defined, that uh, their identity is defined by their membership, just as the possible individuals, their identity is defined by their extent in spatio-temporal terms. And then we have relationships, which is something one thing has to do with another. Okay, if we can move on to slide nine. Okay, now one of the things that we do, and one of the things that's very useful in four-dimensionalism is drawing space-time maps where we um, collapse the spatial uh, dimensions uh, into, the, in this case, into the vertical axis and draw time along the horizontal axis. And then you can just sketch out um, a spatio-temporal extent. And this is very useful because um, what you can do is you can look for different sorts of spatio, different patterns of spatio-temporal extent, and these turn out generally to indicate different sorts of physical object in some way, or, or not even just physical object, different sorts of individual. So it could be activities and, and other sorts of things as well. Okay, moving on to slide 10 then, please. Okay, well... Um, you may not be familiar with data models, so I'll, I'll just introduce um, what we have here. Um, the, the, um, the yellow boxes are things that we call entity types in data models. So you can think of that um, uh, as being roughly equivalent to a predicate. Um, and where you see the orange lozenges, uh, these are also entity types, but they're references to entity types that appear on another page in the model. So it's how we do our off-page connectors and how we do our links to other things. Um, now, uh, what we have are some thin lines, which indicate relationships, um, some thick lines, which uh, indicate a subtype-supertype relationship. So you can see that possible individual is shown as a subtype of thing, as is abstract object, and we have class, relationship, and multidimensional object in turn as subtypes of abstract object. Um, and you can see that uh, there are a number of where the relate the thin lines where they're dotted. It says that's optional. You don't you know it's useful information, but you don't have to provide it. And you can see here that all of this information um, is really metadata about things rather than anything else. Okay. Uh, moving on to slide 11 then. Okay, one of the things that fits very well, one of, one of the issues that you have is dealing with things like plans, uh, things that are going to happen into the future, things that are 
hypothetical, things are just pure fiction. Um, and one of the things that uh, goes quite well for dealing with that in a four-dimensional, once you've taken a four-dimensional approach, is using possible worlds, and this is what we do do. Um, the alternative would be modal logic, and uh, well, that's what is often used um, by three-dimensionalists. Not always. It, it, I think it's a fairly free choice there. But possible worlds is certainly an, an actual choice with um, a four-dimensional approach. Now, the way that that really works is um, if you think of here and now, um, you could in principle look back and see different ways that you could have got here, and you could look forward and see different possible futures, and indeed you can see just complete, you could have just completely different universes. So these are, these are, each line represents in some, some sense a possible universe. Um, in this case, a number that, that passed through one point and have something that they share. Um, but uh, you could equally have universes that share nothing. Um, and this just sets out uh, uh, that idea. So if we move on to slide 12. Before you move on, can I ask a question? Of why, course you can. Uh, why are there multiple uh, possible worlds in the past? Well, think of yourself as a detective. And you have lots of people, right, when you're investigating a crime, telling you different stories about what happened that, that led up to the crime. Uh, that are not all about the same piece of history, but they're about things they've made up in some cases. So what, what has been made up is about a possible past rather than a possible future. That's just an example of when you would use it. Thank you. May I interject Peter too as well? Um, this, this looks a lot like what in the physics world is called a light cone, which actually is usually vertical, but in this case it's, it's identical and it just specifies that there is a kind of time-like relativity between things that have happened and things that can happen. And of course the frame of reference point is the, the present. Yeah, that's, that's quite right. Um, I, I mean, I, it's, it's only for illustrative purposes that I've taken a particular point. Um, you can actually have possible worlds that don't intersect at any, anywhere. I've ha I happen to have picked ones that do to illustrate it, because usually that's what you're interested in. You are usually interested in looking forward from where we are, or more occasionally looking backwards from where we are. But you could, you know, if we talk about the Starship Enterprise, we're just talking about a parallel universe. Or, or if you're talking about, you know, Sherlock Holmes, that's, that's a parallel universe. It's not actually, doesn't actually overlap with the universe we inhabit. Thank you for the clarification. Moving on to the next slide. Okay, so um, a possible individual then is just something that exists in space and time. Um, where uh, it's it's you know a greater than zero both in extent in terms of time and space and you so you can see that on this space-time diagram they can take up almost any shape um, when you see things moving diagonally it means they're on the move because it, they're occupying a different piece of space when they're horizontal that means they're static um, and that it's useful just to to understand that okay so moving on to slide 13 then please. Um, now, a whole life individual, I'll, I'll add the life there, um, 
is is quite interesting because uh, one of the things you want to know about is the thing for the whole of its life because ordinarily those are the ones you want to count. How many cups do I have? Um, I don't want um, the cup that I'm drinking out of and every state of that cup. I just want the whole life one. So, and the whole life is extended as far as you can and it's still the same sort of thing. So in this case we've got a cup. Um, but interestingly, we've got another object, because we've got another object, which is a piece of plastic. And the piece of plastic existed before the cup, and it exists after the cup. Um, and so you have two spatiotemporal extents. And of course, they don't have the same time extent. So you can actually see that the piece of plastic and the cup are different, because although there is a state of the piece of plastic, which is the whole life of the cup, the whole life of the cup is not the same as the whole life of the piece of plastic. So you can identify two different objects here. Okay, can we move on to slide 14? And this shows you how this, this idea of identity works, by the way, using spatio-temporal extent as the basis for identity. Another interesting thing is actually how time is treated. So on the one hand, we take a point in time to actually be the whole universe. So it's, it's a slice across the whole universe at a point in time. So it's actually a 3D object that's the whole universe at a point in time. Similarly, a period in time is the universe extended in time. And that's very interesting because of the way that uh, uh, you actually see things. You, you see time in a very physical way, whereas normally it seems to be abstract. You know, it looks like it's a coordinate. And of course, you can have um, a coordinate view of time which you overlay on it, just as you can have a coordinate view of space, but it's not fundamentally what you're looking at. Fundamentally, you're looking at this spatio-temporal extent, which extends across all space. Okay, uh, moving on to slide 15 then, please. So, one of the things we want to be able to do is talk about temporal parts of things, or um, very often we call, refer to temporal parts as states, as you see in this slide here. And the state of something will normally be the intersection of a period in time um, and uh, a possible, the whole life possible individual. That way you know you're getting the whole spatial extent of that individual. Okay, moving on to slide 16, please. Now here's um, uh, an issue of continuity. I, uh, this is actually a broomstick. Um, well, sorry, not a, a broom, with a head and a handle. Um, and uh, you can see that uh, the head and the handle get changed. But because we haven't changed all the parts at any one time, uh, we see this as being one object with continuity. And these are things, this pattern, we, we call a materialized physical object. Actually, materialized physical objects um, sometimes go through periods of non-existence, uh, you can notice. So if you think about your your watch and you send it to the watchmaker uh, to be repaired, he might disassemble the watch into all its pieces. Um, and then does your watch exist at that time? Well, there's nothing that you can point to that tells the time, so you can argue that it doesn't exist at that point in time. You have, a, have some bits of watch, but not actually the watch. But when he reassembles it and gives it back to you, you think you have the same watch back. You don't think you've got a new watch just because there was some 
period of non-existence. And it's quite interesting to, to note when um, periods of non-existence actually become important. Some periods of non-existence appear not to be critical in determining identity. One of the nice things, and I think this comes to uh, Kevin Lynch, one of Kevin Lynch's uh, questions, which is about things that have periods of non-existence. One of the nice things about a four-dimensional approach is that you can point to exactly that spatio-temporal extent that you mean and say, I mean that. And if it's um, pieces that have been, uh, if, there are, if there are gaps in the uh, uh, of non-existence, that's fine. Um, uh, if there are pieces that overlap, that's fine. You can, you can point to precisely what you mean and say, well, that's the thing I'm talking about. Okay. It's very hard to do that with three-dimensional objects and, and have that same clarity. Okay, can we move on to slide 17 then, please? Ah, this one hasn't come out very well. Um, there's actually supposed to be a, a cylinder uh, that encompasses tag 101 and uh, these two states of pump 1 and pump 2, the bits that are horizontal in the middle. So. Um, this is about something that we call uh, a replaceable part. Um, now, probably, uh, of course, I've used an example from uh, uh, from the process industries. Um, you know, very, in various places, we will have equipment that can be replaced when we need to, um, so that we can keep the plant going. Um, and you'll unhook one piece of equipment and put another piece of equipment in the same place. Now, what do we call the place where we put it? Well, we call those things tags. Um, you get a very similar idea if I give a, a, an example that's maybe a little bit more familiar. Um, if you think about uh, a jet plane with uh, a port and a starboard engine, uh, the pilot starts up the port engine, and then he starts up the starboard engine. And you might look out the window just to check there's something there. But he doesn't go and look at the serial number on the engine. Um, the maintenance guys, they'll come along to the airplane and they'll take an engine off and they'll put another engine on. And when the pilot gets back in the plane, he still just looks and says, is the port engine there? And he starts the port engine. So that idea of a port engine is a replace is this same thing of a replaceable part, um, where operationally you're not concerned about which thing is there, but you're concerned that something is there. And of course, again, here we, we very clearly have a period of non-existence in the middle where in this case, the example I've got in front here, one pump has been removed, but a second pump hasn't yet been installed. And it's quite clear, you know, during this period of non-existence, you would not be able to come along and start up the pump, so that's quite consistent. Um, but this is an idea that, that specifically allows for all the parts to change at some point, and that, that's this idea of a replaceable part. Again, a very clear pattern that you can see spatio-temporally, at least if you had the outline of the, of the tag 101 here. Okay, can we move on to slide uh, 18 then, please? Now, this is the same idea, and here you can see the, uh, uh, the chairman of Shell uh, position, um, which again is, is a replaceable part. Another example of a replaceable part, and, and here we have two people who probably won't be known to you, but certainly I remember, um, John Jennings and Mark Moody Stewart, who were sometime chairman of Shell, and one succeeded the other. And we can surmise that there was um, some slight gap, or even possibly some overlap in the holding of that position. 
And the chairman of Shell, by the way, here, just as with the, the tag on the previous one, uh, you know what it is because it consists of these states of Mark Moody Stewart and John Jennings and all the other people who have held the position of chairman of Shell whilst they were the chairman of Shell. So it's constructed out of those states. So the chairman of Shell is something you can walk up to and kick, which I find reassuring personally. Okay, moving on to slide 19 then, please. Now, this is another interesting pattern. Um, what you see here is that we have um, lines that are, that are on the diagonal rather than vertical. Um, and this is something which in ISO 15926 we called stream. Um, uh, and this is about something flowing, and, it, and it's the same idea that you get with, um, you know, a river passing you and, and, and staying the same. Um, you, you get that kind of sense out of this here. Um, so uh, you have the contents of a tank, a valve is open, the contents flow out, um, there's a hose uh, or, or a piece of pipe that the... Uh, um, uh, the, the liquid flows through, but we're only showing the liquid here, not the not the hose itself. And, and well, in fact, you can see it uh, sitting between the two. And then we have tank B, which is slowly filling up as the liquid goes through. And what you see, the first diagonal line that you see, is the first bit of liquid as it moves down the pipe. It's the front, it's the wave front, if you like, of the liquid moving down the pipe. And the uh, the trailing edge is the last bit of liquid as it, as it flows down the pipe, and behind which there's, there's nothing. Um, and then you can see um, the, uh, the, the second tank filling up as it goes over time. And again, you can see that, that pattern, and um, again, it's the pattern of things moving. Okay, so if we can look at slide 20 then, please. Uh, just as a second... Uh, yes, certainly. This pad, um, do you go back to slide 18, and I have a question on that. When you have uh, uh, two different spatiotemporal extents um, which overlap at some point in time, uh, what do you say call the relationship between those two spatiotemporal extents? Do you say they're equal at that time, or is there a special relationship that you... No, well, no. What, if, we, if we look here the, uh, the, um, at the bit of John Jennings, which is also a bit of the chairman of Shell, right. what we say is there is a state of John Jennings, and that state is also a state of the chairman of Shell. So the state... So it's temporal whole part. It's te yes, it's temp No, no, there is one state. Right. It is both a state of John because it's right. because it's the same spatiotemporal extent. Right, right. Okay. It, it must be the same thing. Right, got it. Okay. And it's a state of both John Jennings and the chairman of Shell. Right. And that's how the overlap's expressed. Good. Thank you. This is Dwayne. I'd like to offer an, a unique perspective on this as well. Uh, during the CCTS work, we often had when we applied the theory um, places where this existed in business. And it actually came to us to realize that the context of role is applicable, almost as important to overlay in a business context as time would be for a physical context. For instance, uh, you're filling a tank. If I'm an accountant in that role, from my perspective, the tank is not full until it is completely topped up. Yet from a person who may be taking uh, fluids out of the bottom of the tank may have access to it as soon as it starts pouring, it is a usable tank. A better example would be the one that I used uh, last year about the the military. 
the you have four men who form some sort of a military unit. One of them dies, and that is uh, synonymous kind of with the uh, the broom uh, illustration on the previous slide. Uh, if you take the head off the broom, to some people it is no longer a broom. Yet to an accountant who is doing inventory, it still may represent a broom. So anyhow, I'd like to talk about that more later. Yeah, and 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 that's that's quite clear. Uh, the, one of the things that you're faced with here is, oh, and it's the really powerful thing about drawing these space-time maps, um, is that you get faced with the patterns, and you draw out the things that, that are there. You don't you don't have to invent stuff or anything. You just draw it out, and you say, oh look, this is what I got. Um, and uh, you have to understand that you you aren't imposing rules about what the patterns have to be. You're noticing what the patterns are. It's very much it's very much like that. The only rule is that if two um, uh, if if two objects have the same spatio-temporal extent, they are the same object. That's the only rule. Ah, um, and the rest is just about spotting the patterns that happen to exist. And you don't you don't you don't have to say, um, oh, things can't go through periods of non-existence. That's just not a requirement. To be clear, clear then, like you're saying, that they, if they share the same um, spatio-temporal extent, they are the same object, but you're not necessarily saying anything about the role that the, the, the different objects may play. Um, your, your, your coexistence there with Chair Michelle and John Jennings, for example. Yeah. Um, they they are the same thing, but they're not necessarily playing the same function. John Jennings is a human being with with a life beyond Shell, hopefully, and Chairman of Shell plays plays a different set of roles. Yes, the, the, so this the, that particular state of John Jennings, whilst he is the Chairman of Shell, would have the roles of, of John Jennings as a father and husband and all right. those sorts of things, as well as the roles of being Chairman of Shell. Okay. 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 Yeah. Um, Oh, yes. Qualified. Oh. Go ahead, Wayne. I was going to say that should be qualified, though, that this only applies to things with mass, because things like neutrinos, which have no mass, can have three different states and can actually not exist for periods of time. Well, time, time is, if you have no mass, you have no time, basically. Some chairs of some companies. <laughs> Ouch. Okay. <laughs> I'd also raise the question whether there is a some delicacy of scale in here. Um, looking at certainly that overlap at some scales may be representing some reality and at other scales not. Uh, I think of a case of an ion exchange column and the scale of the column, the material passing through it is occupying the same space. You may have to look at the scale of the exchange sites within the resin to say that material is still distinct because it is not occupying the same base as the resin. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'm saying here really is that setting these things out in a space-time map nearly always leads to some illumination of what you're looking at and looking for what the pattern happens to be for you and for what you're interested in. As I said, there are very few rules about what has to turn out to be interesting and what kind of pattern that you can have. Um, uh, but, but nearly always you learn something and it's actually the patterns that I think with the different patterns that you find I think are what tell you about the underlying nature of that sort of thing that, the sorts of things that have that particular pattern so I've, I've talked here just about two patterns I'm probably going to talk about a third I've talked about the pattern of 
ordinary materialized physical objects, things that we normally expect to have uh, some sort of uh, temporal continuity. Um, and here we have these replaceable parts where you can have quite clearly um, periods of non-existence and complete replacement of all the parts at one time, So, which is a different pattern. You can find lots of other patterns, I'm sure. Okay. So we've tried, I think we're, we're, we've, uh, we're moving on two slides, to slide 20. Okay. Um, well, I've talked about these ideas, um, and here they are in the data model. Uh, uh, you'll remember that I talked about period in time. Um, we talked about physical objects. The functional physical object, which was the, the ones that were, where you had replaceable parts, so that includes things like the chairman of Shell and the uh, uh, port or starboard engine on the plane. Um, materialized physical objects that, that normally have temporal continuity. The stream where something is flowing. Spatial location we haven't dealt with. We've also touched briefly on whole life individuals. Um, just uh, uh, on actual individual, that was the, that's what actually turns out to be the case. Actual individuals are ones that are part of this world. And, and that includes when they're in the future or in the past. Um, I think those are the ones that I've talked about here. Uh, a key relationship that you have, relation that you have between these is composition of individual, which is about how those things are related. And particularly we've talked about temporal whole part, and we've seen how, for instance, the state of John Jennings was also a state of the chairman of Shell, just as an example of that. And those are the bits of this model that we've uh, we talked about uh, uh, with the diagrams leading up to this. Okay, can we move on to and this this is again just how this is set out in um, uh, in the day, in the in the ISO standard. Okay, another pattern and you'll have seen this on the previous slide was activity, um, and the interesting thing here is that you see states of a number of things being involved, uh, participating in an activity. Um, and in fact, uh, generally speaking, an activity is the temporal parts of its participants. It might refer to some other things. So uh, I could start talking about um, uh, Winston Churchill, um, but clearly no temporal part of him is involved in, in my talking about him. Um, directly. He's not participating in that activity. It's me participating in activity referring to him. And that's a different sort of thing. And sometimes activities recognize things. So I might take a measurement that recognizes that such and such ends up recognizing that, that, that perhaps this room has a temperature of 20 Celsius or something like that. But here we have a pattern, and it's, it's of states of things particularly those that are participating, so performers and other participants. In this case, we're, we're suggesting something being made, so there's some inputs. So think about the plastic cup. You know, we had a piece of blank coming in, you have um, something performing the stamping operation, and you have the plastic cup as an output. Okay, um, if we move on to slide 22 then. Um, events and point in time. Well, we talked briefly about points in time, um, but it's worth mentioning what, how we see events in ISO 1596. Um, we see events as the temporal boundaries of states. 
uh, in particular. Um, and points in time, of course, are particular examples of those which go through the whole universe um, at the beginning and end of a period. Um, so it's the temporal boundary of a state. Usually the start and the end, but just occasionally um, they can they can slope. So that's the idea, and that's not quite the same as many other people use the word event. Um, very often it's used much more in the event is used much in something more similar to the, the what we call activity. So it's important just to be clear that that you understand it is this state change essentially a state coming into being typically at least a state coming into being or a state ceasing to exist. Uh, this is Bill DeSmet. How does that uh, notion of a point in time going through the entire universe square with uh, the lack of simultaneity in relativity? Um, well, I, I'm trying to think. Uh, I, yes, I, could, I suppose I could have guessed someone would ask that question. Um, now, uh, oh, I think I've got the book in. Let me just get the reference. Um, I think that it... Uh, okay, it's Nearlich that I'm looking for, uh, and is what space-time explains. Um, I won't be. It can also help with this. One of the, one of the problems in the uh, special relativity theorem is, is that there is no absolute frame of reference. Yes. You, will, you well, have disparity and duality. You, you, you can have... Um, what you certainly can have is... Um, you need to say what your point in time is relative to. Okay, once you've said, okay, I'm talking about the Earth and it's relative to the Earth or, or even some point on the Earth if, if that becomes critical, um, then uh, you can say what a point in time is. Um, it, it might not be easy or useful to, to talk about points in time, that are, uh, the, the, the same point in time, a long way from the Earth, but for most practical purposes, that's not very important for us today. But you would need to kind, of, you would need to deal with that, and you would need to be able to talk about different times from different places. Um, and there's nothing to stop you doing that, of course. But here we're talking about ordinary time, where you know, uh, if you like, clock time, um, and and how that how that works. Is that okay? Yeah, it works for me. I just um it, it seemed a little bit uh, more cosmic than it needed to be. Well, um, it does. Uh, it does actually work cosmically, as, as I understand it. Um, but you're not you're not saying that time is absolute. Okay, you're, you're allowing that time is relative, and and if you, uh, uh, it's it's really about the principle. So I mean, for practical purposes, we're probably really only interested in time slices across the Earth. Um, and possibly across the solar system. I don't yeah. think we're very often interested in, in time slices that go beyond that. Well, this part, yeah, I mean, the, the same problem occurs in 3D, of course. Uh, yeah, it, that's also true. Physically, it only makes sense to talk about a point in time or an interval of time relative to some particular clock. And uh, the best clock to use is the NIST uh, atomic. You know, they have a series of atomic clocks, and they take an average. That's my time. When I, whenever I say time, by default, that's what I'm talking about. And if I'm not talking about that, you must specify some other clock. Um, in practice, that's what we do. I agree to determine uh, where, the, what, when the point in time is. But again, the, the principle in four-dimensionalism is that it does go across the whole universe, at least in principle. 
Matthew, just another question of clarification. On that graph you have on page 20, on slide 22, you've got this event and you've got an arrow pointing to the other two-headed arrow. For you, yeah. is the event um, a point on that graph or is it the no, no, sorry, it's the thick dimensional... Line. It's, the thick, it's the thick line. So what we're okay. really saying is have a dimension most, across most, ev most events will be parts of a point in time, will be exactly, a part yeah. of a point in time. And that's the useful thing out there. This is how you, how you relate um, change to time. So states come about, the, the, uh, usually there is a, um, a, an event, there is, well, there is an event which is the temporal boundary for the beginning of that state. Um, uh, usually it will be a part of a point in time. I'm thinking you're barring the, the event that somebody actually travels faster than light or something travels faster than light. There's actually formulas for that. If you Google uh, causality, you'll find some of the yeah. laws for mass, momentum, and energy. Yeah. You, you can, yes, you can do that. Uh, it, not something that I've found any use for is, is, is all I can say so far. Um, but that's, that will be related to the kinds of uh, problems that I'm trying to work with. Okay, slide 23. And so here we see how events uh, turn up as the boundaries of, of states of things. Okay, so slide 24. Uh, one thing on slide 23. Um, yes. I, I noticed that um, things can change. Uh, uh -huh. you, you, you have a state depicted in which there appears to be some change occurring at least at the end. So uh, I, I take it then um, uh, a state is simply a time slice and this does not mean that the properties of the object within that interval of time necessarily are constant. They can be changing, is that correct? Um, right. When you're picking, uh, when you're making relationships to a state of something, you are saying that it is true for the whole of that state, the things that you are relating to it. Of course, there can be things that you're not saying about that state that might be changing. Mm. But when you say this state has that property, you mean that it has it for all times during that, whilst that state exists. Okay. Um, okay, slide 24 then. Here we're looking at the um, activity and event, um, and you can see we have the uh, activity entity type. We have events that are caused by activities. Um, you know, we would say that an activity is is something that brings about change. So an activity would need to cause an event really to be an activity, and those events are temporal boundings, i.e., either beginnings or endings, and something that that would be inherited from a supertype is the temporal bounding is a whole part relationship, so there's a possible individual um, that uh, this is the temporal bounding for, the event is a temporal bounding for. You can also see that we have involvement by reference, we've got the participation, and we've got the recognition that I mentioned briefly. And you've also got point in time as a subtype of event. Of course, it is that way around, because although if most events are parts of points in time, a point in time is just a particular event for the whole universe. Okay, moving on to slide 25 then. Well, 
this is about uh, how we how we uh, approach set theory because just as um, we see spatiotemporal extents um, as uh, defining the actual extent defining um, an individual, we take the same approach with classes. So we say that it's the membership that defines. And I've just got some slides here that, that show some of the common ways in which, if, if I talk very loosely about sets being things that have members, um, where the membership doesn't change, um, then there are a, a wide range of different sorts of classes um, that you can have. So here we have the most restricted way, um, which is where instances may only be a member of one set, and you can only have one level. So you have instances and classes, and the classes are mutually exclusive. And there are quite a lot of environments that actually impose that restriction on you. If we go on to the next slide, slide 26. Now here we have a number of levels. So classes are allowed to be uh, themselves members of classes. So this is a model, meta-model, meta-meta-model kind of approach. But we're still enforcing this um, mutually exclusive classes. If we move on to slide 27. Now here we're allowing um, objects to be members of more than one class. So different, different classes can be overlapping. And if we move on to slide 28. Here, this is, this is actually well-founded set theory. Here, things can be members of classes at different levels. So you, you can't, you're not restricted to only being a member of a class at the next level up. You can be a member of a class several levels up. And this is well-founded set theory. And then finally, on slide uh, 30, uh, this hasn't cut, turned out quite so well. Um, we've got uh, uh, we've got some loops here. So uh, slide uh, uh, box P is a member of itself, and we have a loop where slide, uh, uh, Z has P as a member, P has C as a member, and C has Z as a member. So that's that's a that's a loop. And well-founded set theory doesn't allow loops. Non-well-founded set theory, which is this, this is an illustration of, does allow them, provided you can spell them out in the way that, you know, if you can draw the graph, then you can have the set, roughly speaking. <laughs> Non-well-founded set theory works. And this is the, this is the, um, this is what we're preferring at the moment, in the absence of anything better. Okay, so moving on to slide 30. And, and one of the advantages of that, by the way, is that it, it in principle allows you to say things like class is a class, which I think is useful. Okay, so here we have um, a, a few things about classes. Um, we've got a specialization relationship here, uh, which just does your subclass, superclass hierarchy. We also have classification, so uh, and we, we say that things can be classified by classes, or if you like, things can be members of classes. Um, and we have those relationships. And then you can see a number of subtypes of classification and specialization, and a few subtypes of class. I, I might go into class of individual, but I doubt if I will be going into any of the others that are on here. Okay, can we move on to uh, slide 31 then, please? Well, and indeed, here we do have class of individual. Um, a couple of things that are just worth pulling out here is 
property, which is the third brown lozenge down. And property um, is perhaps uh, what you might think of as physical property, or, or even more properly, magnitude, um, which are things like uh, particular degrees of hotness, um, particular masses, and things like that. Um, and these are things that you can classify something as. So I can say that uh, this, the room that I'm in has a degree of hotness which is often known as 20 Celsius, for example. Um, and, and so it's classified. It's a member of that, uh, that property class. Um, status would be um, things that are discrete, things that aren't, you know, properties. Uh, a property is a, a member of a continuum. Um, with statuses, that's the same sort of idea, but, but you don't have a continuum. So, um, and, and there isn't a particular order that, that, the, uh, that these things have that is significant. Um, the other thing that's particularly interesting in here are the class of arranged individuals. Um, most of the things that we're interested in, in particular as engineers, are things that are arranged. They're the way they are because, well, either that's the way nature made them, or more particularly, that's because the way engineers made them. And it's particularly the ones that are the way engineers made them um, that, are, that are interesting to us, but also then the bits of nature that they're made out of. So if we can move on to slide 31. This is kind of... This is 32. Uh, sorry, third, um, where are we? 32. Sorry, yes indeed, 32. If we can move on, we're on the slide 32 now. So you'll remember about uh, the, the plastic cup. There was a piece of plastic um, and a temporal part of it uh, was, a, was a cup. And this kind of takes that to um, you know, its ultimate level. So you know, if you have an assembly, um, you have the state and the simple artifacts that were assembled to, to, to make that up. Then for the simple artifacts, you have perhaps the molecular stuff material that that was made out of. Um, and the simple artifacts are temporal parts of that. Then you have the molecular material that it was made out of, um, you have the atoms that they're made out of. And for the atoms, you have the subatomic particles and so on. And in each case, the thing at the next level up is made out of temporal parts of things at the lower level assembled in a particular way. And this is what we mean by um, arranged individuals. <coughs> We're talking about that, that general idea of things being made out of. And it's interesting to notice that sometimes you, you're going through very clear levels um, like between atomic and molecular levels, uh, that, that actually the whole way you see things might might seem different. Um, could I could just the, clarification on, on that uh, diagram that on the right hand side, um, just be consistent with your earlier graphs. Would it not be fair to say that the the thickness of the lines would also grow as you go higher up that? Oh yes, higher yes, up that it would. To, to represent uh, greater well, spatial extent indeed, because fundamental that, particle coming back to Dwayne's point is uh, yes. Now that, that's good, and I've arranged them to look um, to go next to the things that they're that they're related to in, in the uh, in, in the list of entity types there. Um, okay. But if we were looking really at a, at a subassembly kind of thing, then the lines at the bottom would be inside the lines at the top. So yeah, the, the, the things at the top would be very much wider. So yes, that's a good point. Okay, so um, that's 
that's the way you write works. And again, that gives you, uh, that shows you something about the way that things are um, that I think is very interesting. But of course, you come down to fundamental particles and they may actually exist for quite short times. And so it may be lots of those things that are, that, that are participating in, in your atomic and molecular particles. But you know, some of those things equally go on for a much longer time. Okay, slide 33. Okay, and this is just showing that made out of kind of approach. So you have a cup made out of a piece of plastic, which is made out of uh, hydrocarbon molecules, which is made out of atoms, and so on and so forth. Moving on to slide 34. And here we have the subtypes of class of arranged individual that we've identified um, that, that, that are important. Now, the thing that's interesting is that um, up at the, the top of this, we have class of functional objects. So that would be something like a pump or an airplane, where you're saying what it does rather than what it is. Um, and on the left-hand side, you'll see class of inanimate physical object. Now, these are the intersections of um, the things on the right, where you say, yeah, it's a plane, and it's made out of this, and it's made out of, and that's made out of this, and it was treated in this kind of way, and the whole, you know, and this thing had that sort of crystalline structure, and it was made up of those sorts of molecules, and so on, uh, in as much detail as you wish. And uh, by taking the intersection of the, you know, relatively pure classes and ideas on the right-hand side, you can actually build up quite a detailed specification um, of the the actual practical thing that you've made, uh, or which you've designed, as the case may be. And, and bearing in mind that these are classes of things. So a model uh, a model 45 ball Warner pump will be, you know, a pump with this throughput, and it'll be made out of that sort of material, and it'll have been tempered in, in that kind of way to give it this crystalline structure in, in the metal, and so on and so forth. Okay? So, moving on to slide 35, then. Okay, well, um, one of the things that um, we do explicitly is look at how uh, things are named, represented, um, described, defined, um, and we treat the the names of things as objects, just as the things themselves. So names have the same ontological status as the things that they name in, in, in that sense. So um, here we have our representation relationship, representation of thing relationship. And what we see here is the thing may be represented by a possible individual, where the possible individual is playing the role of a sign for the thing. So we could have a piece of paper with some writing on it, or indeed you're probably looking at a screen. And here you have it, and it's a sign for the things that I'm trying to describe to you. Uh, it's a particular possible individual that you're looking at. Um, and there is something, which is the ideas I'm trying to convey, which is being represented. Um, we also have down here that this representation um, is used by particular possible individuals. And there's a responsibility, perhaps, um, for the, uh, is under the control of some other possible individual. And we have some type, subtypes of representation that are particularly significant, um, identification, description, and definition. Um, 
You'll notice that definition has a relationship to class. That's because, um, generally speaking, individuals can't be defined. They are what they are. Um, uh, whereas classes can reasonably have a definition for them. Uh, and so individuals are things that you describe. Classes are things that you define. Okay, um, if we move on though, but this is just one level. So uh, here we're talking about the base level of a, you know, the particular screen that you're looking at um, uh, and the thing. If we now move on and think about, well, what's common to all the screens that all of us are looking at at the moment? What is that's common to that? Then if we move on to slide 36, you can see that we get the idea of the class of information representation, which is the yellow box up at the top there. Um, and this is, a, this is now playing the role of a pattern. And actually, um, it's the same thing that is being represented. And I, here we've, we've moved up a level, so it's a class of representation. Um, and this talks about the abstract idea of the information that you're looking at um, being the same, um, whilst there are a number of physical implementations of that down at the level that we've just been looking at. Now, actually, it turns out this is normally the level that we're interested in information about. We're not actually usually, but occasionally, we're interested in particular bits of paper and who's got which copy of which, um, particularly for stuff that's uh, very high security classification. But most often, we're interested in what's common to all the copies, because that's actually what the information is, or what we ordinarily think of as perhaps the information content. And so that's what we talk about here, what's common to the different bits and pieces of paper. Um, I think this, this shows the diff something, uh, most ontologies that I see treat this stuff as an individual, the class of information representation as an individual, rather than as a class, which is, which is what we treat it as. So if we can move on to slide 37, which I think might be the last slide. No, not quite. Okay. And here we have class of class of representation, where we look at those patterns, and we say, um, that this pattern was in that language, for instance, or this pattern was in that format, or this pattern was in that, according to that document definition. So here we have essentially the things that are classes of classes of pieces of paper, if you like, or something that typically could be a piece of paper, or what's on a piece of paper. Okay, slide 38. So, uh, this is the summary slide. Um, a 4D ontology sees physical objects as extended in time as well as space. ISO 15926 is a data model stroke that is also a 4D ontology. It uses a possible worlds approach rather than modal log logic and has sets that are defined by extension. And we just look at the way that it, it deals with representation. I think that's it. Are there any questions, please? Slide 39. I'd like to queue up for a few. This is Dwayne. Certainly. <clears throat> uh, first of all, I just want to say I'm, I'm extremely impressed. I've been struggling for years uh, on how to express a lot of this, and you've really eloquently expressed concepts in a, an easily uh, grokable form. Um, some of the some of the concepts that you talked about with the temporal overlay onto a three-dimensional world, uh, Bill McCarthy, who's also on this call, and I have been kind of working with the, the notion not specifically linked to temporal aspects, but to things that, by their context, affect the base ontology. 
And we had uh, a model that we had uh, worked on developing, which was actually an eight-dimensional context overlay onto a static ontology of business objects. When we went to implement it, one of the more difficult things we had to account for was the actual uh, exponential growth of expressions possible. So with, with eight context classifiers in the UNCCTF, for instance, we had um, most of them had around 3,000 possible values, thus meaning that there were uh, potentially eight times 3,000 to the power of it's the power of eight different context variations. Given that time is infinite, um, when you start applying this to uh, start writing predicate calculus uh, that actually accepts and accounts for both individual time junctions and also ranges of time, uh, do you find any problems with the uh, exponential growth? Uh, potentially, I guess it would be an infinite growth. Well, I'm glad to say that I don't spend much time writing predicate calculus. But, uh, I let other people do that. So um, uh, there have been people who have complained about what they call the combinatorial explosion. Most of the classes that we were looking at, um, most of the entity types that we were looking at in the model, um, are not mutually exclusive. A few of them are. I didn't mention mention it particularly because it's not, not the most important thing. Um, so you can actually get quite, you can actually get combinations of the different entity types. Um, uh, and uh, that does give you enormous expressive power. Um, the, the main thing, and, and, and we do have what's sometimes called is the, uh, the problem of abundance. So because you can have um, any spatiotemporal extent that you want, you know, there are therefore an infinite number of spatiotemporal extents out there. Um, the good news is you don't have to be interested in all of them. So the thing then is about being careful about which ones are interesting. Uh, much the same with classes. Um, and uh, so that's really been the way that we've we've looked at it. So you set up the things that are possible, and then look at the things that are interesting. Yeah, that was kind of the same approach that the uh, the core components team went with too. Yeah. Um, one other thing you said right at the beginning caught my my interest. You said generally um, the 4D model uh, only applies to physical objects. So uh, assuming that everything. Uh, this would be applicable to has a velocity of less than 299 million meters per second. Um, are there any uh, exceptions where something could have zero mass and this, this would be applicable to it? Well, no, I, uh, let's be careful. I may have talked about physical objects because it's, it's, it's a good way to illustrate it. Um, uh, but Four-dimensionalism just is about the, the, the um, spatio-temporal extents are about things that exist in space-time. If you can locate something in space-time, then it is a four-dimensional object. I don't care about the mass or anything else. That's just that's just a property it might have, or not. Yeah, that that's brilliant. Okay, no, I just wanted to, to get the clarity. No, on. it's good 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 to do that. Yeah. I, I don't want to hog you all up, so I'll. Look. Probably let the other people uh, ask some questions here. Okay, I'm. I'm uh, it may take me a while to get to them, but if if anyone doesn't get their questions answered today, I'm quite happy to take them by email. Thank you. And uh, since Dr. West is subscribed to the Ontolog forum list, and for the sake of the rest of the community, we would appreciate maybe exchanging the 
uh, the broader questions over the Ontolog forum since that uh, the exchange will be archived and it's accessible by anyone who would be interested at yep. uh, further points in time. Perfectly happy to take them there. Okay. Uh, Any other questions? So the, uh, let's make sure uh, if, if we have a uh, whole bunch of questions that, that we queue people up. I mean, uh, who would... Uh, well, the, um, Ke Kevin Lynch had a couple of questions that were just a little bit further down on your on this on this web page. I, I think I have addressed those, but it, it might be just worth checking with Kevin that he thinks I have. Right. Kevin did say that he might have to leave a little early. Are you still there, Kevin? Okay. And I'll be back about eight o'clock. Okay. Oh. Okay. So Kevin actually left, but I, I believe you addressed oh, that's okay. his question. This is, this is Peter Brown in Vienna. Um, it, it's actually a bit of a follow-up, both from Dwayne's point and Kevin's question on identity being a consequence of temporal continuity. And if you take something which is an abstract concept, like uh, it's something we've been tackling a lot in the European Parliament. You take a concept like a piece of legislation or a, uh, an amendment to a piece of legislation being debated. That can have that has an existence. Uh, I mean, it's actually part of it. It's a its existence is embodied in documents which have different forms, different languages, and everything else, and have different conceptual layers from a general work down to a specific piece of paper. But do they 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 clearly have common identity? Uh, you can be talking about a particular piece of legislation in whichever language in the European Parliament, at whichever stage of the consideration, so on the temporal line it's still the same thing, um, but doesn't have a, it doesn't have any substance on the, in terms of spatial coordinates, in terms of your 4D model, but I mean... Yes, this, this is a good question, and, and um, uh, because uh, laws and rules are, are, are really about classes of allowed activity and things like that. Um, and uh, so we would we would normally treat those as classes, but they're classes um, that only apply to a particular piece of space-time, and so they're bounded in that way. So you know, um, European laws would only would be bounded would, would apply to Europe, to, for, uh, and, and a particular law from the point that it's passed to to something else, and that all needs to be wrapped up into uh, which are the activities that it applies to. So put, put the question in a different way, what does the spatial extent represent for an abstract object? Um, an abstract object, uh, uh, abstract objects do not exist in space-time by definition, um, so they are just classes. Okay, okay. But, and, and the way that you get into, the way that you get the time into it is which, usually with laws it's about act, what activities you're allowed to do or required to do as the case may be. Um, and it's about uh, what is the time period in, for those activities, because usually legislation um, sets rules that, that only apply to uh, activities from a certain date. That's and that's correct. something you need to do. That's something you need to do in any case, because yeah. um, that's one of the questions that was, was being asked was about you know the um, uh, the class of all dead things. Well, that's yeah. everything, um, or at least everything that was ever alive. Um, because uh, everything eventually is dead, um, but actually, what you're more interested in are you know those things that have died up to a certain point in time, 
or those things that have died this year or something like that so very often um, time does work into the definition of the class okay uh, now this is it Huck, if I may please do please. Yeah. Uh, is, is there a room or, or uh, intention to express a causality or dependency? Okay, well, the, the way that we do that is through the activity. Do you remember we had activity and event and cause of event? So the event is... is the, uh, is the event is a part of the state and it's usually the beginning of the state well the beginning of the state or an end of the state and so an activity causes this state to come into existence and does that answer your question I'd, I'd like to comment on that further this is Blaine um, I, I see the two as intrinsically linked and it's actually unfathomable how one would express that because if you if you look at some causality patterns or relationships the temporal displacement is actually the primary uh, factor in that. For instance, um, if I stole something and pawned it at a pawn shop, those are two events. Not that I do that. I work in standards, so I'm just as much a criminal. But uh, if I did that, um, it certainly doesn't have a causality. If I did it the other way around, that would be interesting to somebody investing the crime. So, you know, when you look well, at how... Yeah, there's a couple of issues there. Um, uh, the stealing would not be an event. Um, the goods becoming stolen, that point in time when they become stolen, that would be an event, or, or that, that, temp that uh, the intersection of that point in time with those goods would be an event when they entered a <coughs> stolen state. Uh, okay. This is interesting, though, because this is I, I did some work as a consultant for the government of Canada and the Justice uh, Initiative, yeah. and it, they determined that it actually depends on the point of view, because the person who has the thing stolen will always assert that it has been stolen, and that was, in fact, an event. A police officer investigating it will only deem it an event if the person is willing to file a charge on it. Um, right. From a judge, it becomes a non-event if there is no no uh, initial charge laid out the event, okay. despite the fact well, that the event has obviously occurred. Yes, okay, and that's fine, and this is, this is about uh, the different classifications that different people have from different perspectives, and, and that's okay. Um, uh, it might even affect, uh, there's another interesting kind of situation there where um, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's transvestites. Um, if, if you're a transvestite uh, in Australia, if, you're a ma if you've started off biologically as a male, in Australia you're still a male, whereas in some, at least some parts of the US um, you, would, you would be a female. So, sorry, do I mean that? What do you have a sex change? Not a transvestite. That's just dressing up as yeah. male. I, I, um, have to, I have to actually send you this uh, set of slides I have because that is actually the exact example there. In Canada, we have ten different values for gender yeah. for a human and being. It's, it's about, and it's about when and where things. Um, it's about when and where things are true, and 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 you should be able to. And as far as I know, there's nothing in four-dimensionalism that prevents you from doing that. It's just about you know when you're a part of 
when you overlap or are a part of this spatio-temporal extent, then you're a, uh, a man. When you overlap with this one, you're a woman. It and seems to me that your, your distinction between activity and event is actually quite useful in that context. Well, yes. Activities are, are things happening. Yeah. And the events are the results, the, okay, change, yeah. the, the specific changes. And the, the, the events, of course, are entirely instantaneous. And, and they are literally the start of the state or the end of the state. So, so to take Dwayne's example of a, of a theft, that would be more of an activity than an event then? The theft would be an activity, yes. Okay. Uh, okay. Some goods being stolen, uh, being, you know, uh, a, a state of the goods being stolen, the start of that state is an event. Yeah. Uh, I'm very interested in I, the set of questions that seem to be applied against this, and I, I very much appreciate it. This is Josh Lieberman. This uh, view of what I think is in a, um, you know, a representation of asserted reality in four dimensions, and it has its power and clarity from that. And a lot of the questions seem to be directed towards, well, this is great. What shall I do with this? And yeah. that's when these questions of frame of reference, perception, um, synchronicity, you know, how can I possibly tell that two events are simultaneous in time, given limits of real-time commuting, com uh, computing and or relativity? Uh, so uh, I wonder, I'm sure that you've thought about this uh, being augmented by those other practical measures that say, well, that's right. Yeah. With my assertions of reality. Yeah. Indeed, and, and in particular with, with time, um, very often we don't know exactly when a point in time is, but we probably have a high degree of confidence that this point in time occurred within that period of time. You know, so, um, and, and, and that's how we would approach that kind of issue. Mm. Any other questions? Could you address the issue of uh, uncertainty and probability that may occur if, when you have multiple states that, uh, and, you know, you only have a, you only know with a certain probability that something is occurring? Uh, this is Ken Bosofsky. Uh I I can't honestly say that we have looked a great deal at that. I don't think we have had cause to. Um, mm -hmm. We have. Um, we, uh, we have looked at some statistical sorts of things, which is about looking at a class of things um, and noticing some properties that relate to the class as a whole, if you like. Uh, statistical properties seem to be to do with classes of things, and we've noticed that. Um, but I, I haven't... Uh, and, and you do have general issues of vagueness, which is just about, you know, what are you pointing at when you say Mount Everest? You know, what... what uh, it's reasonably clear when you look at the top, but what, what, what are you pointing at when you get down to the bottom, and how far down into the ground do you go, and things like that. So you do have those kinds of um, uh, issues, and you just say, you know, oh, it, it is what you mean. We, we assert that we're, we're talking about the same thing. But I don't think that's quite what you're getting at. Uh, no, no, I, I'm thinking more in terms of probability distributions that... Um, and they can evolve over time. So there's certainly an issue of you know what the extent of the probability distribution is over time that comes up in issues like situation awareness. I mean, just look at the case of uh, 
um, you know, where where is a uh, hurricane located, you know, it's very important to know that right. tomorrow it's going to be in a certain location with oh, okay. a distribution. Oh, no, that's not so bad. No, that, that's okay. Um, because here we're looking at different possible worlds, and um, you're wanting to assign a probability to that possible world turning out to be the actual world. Yes, that's so, what I have. Yeah, I think that's I think that's something that, that you can do reasonably. Where where is that in the uh, standard? Oh well, I mean it's not there in it's not there in the sense of you know here's the page that tells you how to do it. Um, it's there in the sense that um, it supports possible worlds, um, and so you can construct the things that you need. I don't think there's anything that would stop you constructing the things that you need. I'd have to think about how you actually um, assigned probabilities to particular possible outcomes that, that you were doing, but I don't have a... Uh, that, that's about thinking about how you would need to do it. I have not had to do this, so... Um, okay. Uh, Thanks, uh, I, I understand. Uh, you know, we, we have a toolkit, not a, mm -hmm. not a complete set of answers for every problem. I have one other uh, question that has to do with uh, what exactly is the definition of an event? An event, it's um, a temporal boundary is the, is the nicest way to talk about it. Um, so uh, its use is usually as the, the initial or final temporal boundary of a state of something or of the whole life of something for that matter. So can it be both the beginning and end of a state? Uh, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Okay. Oh, okay. It's, it's the most used in determining the boundary between the beginning of one state and the end of another. Well, actually, we tend to think of them... Well, no, very often there are just periods that are indeterminate. You know, even when you turn a light switch on, there's, there's, there's a short time when it's neither on nor off properly. Um, and, and so usually, um, I don't expect I, I don't expect that there are uh, you know that you're talking about a state space machine in, in some sense that it's always in one of a number of defined states. I mean that's an idealised but not often very real view of the world. That was uh, hinting at the perspective uh, stuff that I would uh, I commented on earlier too. For instance, in the shell example. You know, there are some people who would figure that he is now the CEO the moment the paper is uh, signed, whereas some people may not hear about it for another five or ten minutes afterwards. And uh, same with the light switch uh, example. It's a great one. I mean, that's the basis for quantum computing. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely blown away with this. This is, this is so excellent. Well, this brings us to the problem. This is, like, again, of, of time lags and delays. Well, sometimes they are only seconds or fractions of seconds. Sometimes they are longer, and and especially in financial systems, if you are trying to evaluate the effect of certain <coughs> policy decision on whatever, uh, and, and these things again, the the, the element of uncertainty or um, amount of, of effect. Of, causal, of causal effect comes into into play. I mean, there are so many different elements that come into this uh, 
four-dimensional schema of time yes. and, and, and uncertainty and you name it. Well, one of the things we did think to build in is that um, it, it's designed to be an integration schema, so we anticipate the possibility of different copies of the information existing in different systems. So one of the things we built in is, is um, uh, when was the original record created and when was this copy in this system created? Because, as, as someone was saying, you know, this could be 10, 15, several hours, several days later. Um, and you might have made some decisions on the meantime, in the meantime, and you know, then this piece of data turns up in the database and you ask, well, why didn't you take this into account? You know, the, the data was available, it was created two or three days ago, and you can, so we, we've, we've made it clear so, so you can see that, well, it might have been created several years ago, but it didn't become available in this system until five minutes ago. Um, so that, that kind of thing and some of those epistemological kind of issues um, are things we have tried to address at, at that kind of practical level. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look carefully at the, uh, at the attributes of thing, you know, which was the first data model slide, you would, you would, see, those, you would see those attributes in there. I, I didn't dwell on them, but they were there. Yeah. I printed the presentation and I have it in very, very small print. <laughs> so it's, I have to go back to the screen. Yeah, you, you may, yes. Well, here you go. So if we, um, you can see when the, uh, when the record was created is, is something you can say. Obviously, who said it? When this copy of the record was created. We also allow for being logically deleted. You know, occasionally people have finger trouble and they create something they shouldn't. But it was just a mistake. Um, and uh, so, so we say that you can logically delete something. In principle, you never delete any data. I mean, you might in practice right. do a tidy up every so often, but um, right. uh, in theory, at least, records are never created. Never are never deleted. They're only uh, uh, they're only ever created. And actually, it could be unusual for them to be changed, even. Yeah, yes, certainly. Record, and then you can possibly trace back what caused the change? Well, we, we don't, generally you don't, the only time you would change a record is if you logically deleted it. Otherwise, well, actually, no. all, all the records here, you just, you just, even, you show change by adding more records. Well, so what meant is you create a new a new version of a record with a change, which I don't know if it's a new version or entirely right. new. But it would be a new record always. Um, yeah, uh, and you always have the old record there to show how things have been. It all comes down to layers of abstraction about what a record is again. It's well, a record would here would be an instance of an entity type. So yeah. you have to, in principle, you can see all the yellow boxes as being SQL tables and everything being expressed as instances of those tables, as records on those tables. And when we get round to talking about how we would process information, um, you know, we're talking about this is the data model, which would be the basis for the design of the database. May I ask why on the uh, entity uh, definition for thing, it's got a attribute, uh, why deleted? Yeah. Which seems to actually be a bit confusing, because that would actually seem to be a, uh, to me it would, uh, it would be uh, inferred as an attribute of the deletion itself. Yes, um, that's right, in, indeed, and um, this is just where we took some shortcuts. This is all metadata, yes. so uh, you want it with the record itself, 
um, rather than with a record about the record, or else you can end up on the backside faster than you can you can imagine. So these are just denormalized onto the thing entity type. So uh, you would normally, of course, these would not be populated. The record logically deleted, and, and uh, if the record logically deleted uh, attribute was uh, set, then you would expect someone to have given an explanation. But this would be a hopefully uh, an unusual occurrence. Yeah, because that, uh, that would be actually uh, breaking one of the rules of attributes, which is that you can't have an attribute to an attribute. Yeah, indeed. Um, so one, one other question. Uh, is there a possibility for people to join and work on this? Uh, yes, there certainly is. Um, ISO 15926 is developed in um, uh, an ISO committee, technical committee, ISO TC184SC4. Um, the, the, there's a, a link to um, uh, the data model online on the SC4 online website, and if you um, chopped off most of that, you would actually get to SC4 online, which is which is where that community works. Um, uh, there are a number of consortia who are doing work to further what we are doing here. Um, I, I think Theatech, if you, has any of you heard of Theatech, um, are one of those. Yes, here's where that link is. And, oh, okay. Um, uh, and so the, the, there are certain opportunities um, to to get involved with that activity. Um, if you are in Europe, I, I would suggest getting involved with one of the European consortia. Um, but yes, no, there are, there are certainly plenty of opportunities to do so. Um, and if you would uh, like me like to do so, yes, here you go. There it is. So that's online, and that's that's the ISO community that, that, that works on it. And you will be able to find out that there's a, an interesting meeting at uh, Vico Equenze in, in Italy. They meet three times a year for formal meetings, um, and work carries on in between, very much as we're, we're doing work here today. Bill, are you still on the line, Bill McCarthy? Yes. Uh, do you see the, the uh, relevance and uh, impact on the CCTS work from this that I do? Um, I, I do. Um, I'm actually going to have to get the standard and look at it. It's, uh, it's uh, has some effect, especially the process, uh, excuse me, the activity event definitions. Um, I guess I can't comment on it right now. I, I didn't actually look at the standard. I just followed the slides, and I, 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 uh, I clearly have some rethinking to do on some of the work. Yeah. Well, some of the constructs like number range and uh, number space, uh, other relationship are directly applicable to the yeah. meta model for UMM as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, you're looking at the model itself now, are you? Oh, yeah. Um, yes. So yes, uh, we actually treat numbers as objects, and then you know what you normally get is a representation of a number, not the number itself. So real in a computer is is just a representation of a number. Right. The one I really like is phase. That's something that CCTS seems to ignore. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Uh, we recognise that. Oh, uh, my background is in engineering, so you'd expect me to have at least thought of phase. Um, but um, yes, it's it's uh, it's quite a tricky thing to work in.
We have, we have a concept of state and business models or process models, but the, the phase seems to be a little bit more uh, flexible. Ah, now be careful. Phase as a subtype of arranged individual yep. means physical phase, liquid, gas, solid, that sort of thing. Well, from the from a not, uh, not not phase as in stage. No state, state. Right. Oh, yes. Okay. Not not stage. No. So when, okay. we, when we look okay. at when we look at phase and state, uh, now the the one the one difficulty is that of course this is in the oil and gas uh, frame, whereas we're in kind of a more uh, electronic business information frame. Yeah. The, the well, that that affects that affects the examples that we have, but um, actually, you know, um, the the. What the, the model works very well with, um, and uh, particularly any kind of engineering. It's very well set up for any kind of engineering because um, the process industry uses all sorts of engineering anyway. Um, and one one thing I haven't mentioned is that um, you know the idea being that this is um, in principle a, 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 a conceptual data model for which you could, you would have a physical model that, that turned into tables. Um, we also then have a lot of reference, what we call reference data, which is uh, more detail of the ontology, um, particularly equipment types, and we have um, properties and things of that nature. And we have about, um, uh, I think, about 50,000 of those kinds of objects lined up to be um, to be standardised as parts of other parts of ISO 15926. So the data model is part two. Uh, we've actually got some work on geometry, which is, I think, just been standardized, but I don't think it's quite been published as part three. Um, then we have uh, an initial set of reference data. I think that's the first 10,000, which is part four. Um, and then we're setting up a maintenance agency so that you can add to that. And as I said, there's already work in the wings on something like 50,000 classes of equipment and property and that sort of thing. Um, obviously focused on the process industries, but as I said, we, we use every other sort of engineering. It seems to, uh, that I can see uh, remnants of uh, sort of a procedural thinking model in some of these things as well, which of course uh, matches with the temporal aspects and, uh, and perspectives. Um, is, are things like, are you familiar with STEP? as in the standard exchange of product data. Yes, yes. Yes, that's a sister standard to ISO 15926. It's developed in the same community. Ah, okay. I was, I was just going to note that the, there seems to be a similarity in the uh, conceptualization of uh, the domain from that. Um, yes, I mean, we, uh, on the one hand, we were, uh, uh, STEP was very much focused on exchange. Yes. Um, and we found that, so they, they very much had a snapshot view of things. Uh, whereas for us, we wanted to have an integration view, um, but uh, we're unquestionably looking at essentially the same stuff underneath. And there's been quite a bit of to and fro between the step standards and ISO 15926. Uh, uh, you know, each each uh, stealing from the other with pride. Well, uh, it's been ex is extremely. Uh, educational and interesting to have Dr. West with us today, and we're quickly running out of time. So on behalf of the community, we thank Dr. 
Matthew West for spending time sharing his insight with us on four-dimensionalism and the ISO 15926. Let's continue the dialogue over the forum. And maybe at this juncture, I would also like to put a plug into the uh, a, a next major event that uh, Dr. West will be uh, participating with us at, and that as most of you have received the announcement, would be the Upper Ontology Summit that the Ontolog Forum, uh, SciCorp, and NIST are co-organizing. Uh, it will be physically held at NIST at Gettysburg, Maryland uh, on March 15th, but it will also be uh, accessible remotely like an ordinary Ontolog event. Uh, that would be in East, uh, U.S. East Coast time, uh, March 15th, uh, from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. And among the panelists and speakers, uh, obviously we have uh, Matt, uh, Dr. West on ISO 15926, but we will also have uh, John Bateman from uh, Bremen, Germany on spatial cognition, uh, Pat Cassidy representing the uh, ONTAC Cosmo effort, uh, Eldo Gangami on Dolce description and situation extensions, Mike Gruninger on PSL, Nicola Gorino on Dolce, Doug Lannett on Open Psych, uh, Brand Neiman uh, representing the uh, government SciCorp eGov efforts, uh, Leo Oberst uh, representing Ontolog and MITA. Uh, Adam Peace on Sumo, uh, Steve Ray from NIST, and Barry Smith and Werner Schuster uh, on the uh, basic formal ontology. So it's going to be a whole crowd there uh, on March 15th. If you are on this call, uh, this the Upper Ontology Summit is almost definitely an event you don't want to miss. Okay, that's more than a mouthful. And uh, once again, Thank you very much, uh, all of you, for joining us today. And thank you very much, Dr. West and uh, Dr. Cassidy, for inviting Dr. West to spend time with us. And thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, this you. session has been recorded, and before the end of the day, it will be posted in shortly uh, a podcast on